You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us tonight at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and welcome to Writers Live. So tonight, we're very thrilled to have Brian Vandermark in conversation with George Petrus of USA Today. After their conversation, we'll have a Q&A, so I'll bring the mic around to people just so the audio picks up, um, and then there will be time to mingle and buy books from the local independent, the Ivy Bookshop. In Road to Disaster, A New History of America's Descent into Vietnam, Brian Vandermark looks at the cataclysmic decisions made by the best and the brightest through the prism of recent research in cognitive science, psychology, and organizational theory. He teaches history at the United States Naval Academy, where for more than 25 years he has educated midshipmen about the Vietnam War. He's also been a visiting fellow at Oxford University. George Petrus is the graphics editor and researcher for USA Today. So we're very thrilled they're both here. Please give them a warm welcome. Uh, so my name is George Petrus. It's very nice to be with you here uh, today. The reason I'm here is because I reviewed the book for USA Today, and I, I thought it was just extraordinary. And uh, so I'm very glad to be able to uh, talk to uh, Professor Vandermark here. I guess I'd just like to start out, uh, before we just go right to the book, um, your interest in Vietnam, how did that start? Well, I, it started, can you hear me? Yeah, yes, it started when I was a child. Um, I was born in 1960, um, so I was about 10 years uh, younger than most of those who were exposed to the draft, many of whom went to Vietnam. Um, and I was old enough to, in the mid to late 60s, to realize just in the air and the atmosphere um, the controversy, the intensity, the emotional um, quality of the war and uh, the consequences of that for American politics, for American society. Uh, some of my friends in my neighborhood had older brothers who were exposed to the draft. Uh, our next-door neighbor um, was a Baptist pastor whose oldest son flew medevac helicopters in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember he and his wife were always exceedingly anxious to get the next letter from their son because that was a very risky occupation. So that, that it made the war real for me, um, but I did not have to make choices about the war uh, with people older than I did. Um, so in a sense, um, I was able to understand and grasp the uh, complexity and the emotionality of the war and the controversy of the war, but uh, I was also detached enough because I, my life wasn't touched by it uh, in ways that it was for older uh, people born in the late 40s and 50s. When I was in graduate school, I decided to write a dissertation on uh, the escalation of the Vietnam War um, at UCLA, and that was my dissertation. I, I published that as my first book, and it was right around that time that uh, I was contacted by Richard Holbrook, uh, who was then an investment banker in New York, who agreed to be the co-author of Clark Perford's memoir. And he asked me would I be interested in serving as a research assistant, and I basically said, are you kidding? Um, it was a legendary figure in Washington who had served Truman uh, from 1945 to 1950. Um, he later became a prominent lawyer in Washington and Secretary of Defense during the very bloody year of 1968. 
So I spent a couple of years working with him and Holbrook on his memoir. Um, and it just, it deepened my, um, my curiosity and my um, fascination with McNamara. Because McNamara had served as Secretary of Defense for seven years. He remains the longest continuously serving Secretary of Defense in American history. Um, it was sort of like Hamlet, um, but the character of Hamlet in the play uh, would never appear on stage. He remained utterly silent about his involvement in Vietnam for many, many years after the war. And I was just uh, struck by that. And I decided to write a biography of McNamara uh, as my next project. And I contacted him. He agreed to meet with me for interviews, but the one subject that he refused to discuss with me was Vietnam. Um, and I respected that, and I was hoping that I might be able to change his mind over time. Um, but I didn't confront him, I didn't push him, um, I just let him talk. And I think that's really what he needed to do. And I think after a period of time he realized that uh, um, I was willing to hear him out. Um, not patting him on the back, criticizing him, but just hearing him out. And there was a very uh, detailed and critical biography that was published about a year or two into my own project by a lady named Deborah Shapley. And he asked me to read the book and tell him what I thought of it. Uh, I read the book, and it was very critical. And I visited him in his office, and I said, in essence, it's not quite the book I would write, but it's fundamentally a good book. Um, because by that point, I had realized that uh, he's, he's a big man rather than a little man um, who uh, I think respected and really indeed expected honesty and criticism from people. He's not the kind of person who wanted people to tell him what he, they assumed he wanted to hear. And what I was also implicitly trying to tell him was that I would call them as I saw them. Um, and at that point I said, um, if you were interested in willing to write your memoir about the Vietnam War, I will help you because I wanted to lay that card on the table that uh, I was just going to be honest with him. Um, and he immediately agreed. Um, and we spent uh, two years working on that project. It was very difficult for him. Um, very difficult. Um, and it became apparent to me that uh, not too uh, long after that, that he too, in his own way, was uh, a victim of the war that he had helped author. It's, an, it's a Shakespearean paradox in a way. Uh, but oftentimes people assume that he was a human computer, someone who uh, was an automaton who was just uber analytical and rational and didn't feel anything or feel any regret or remorse. And I can tell you for a fact that it's utterly untrue. Um, but he was also from a generation that wore that mask of stoicism who tended to hide his emotions and the emotional uh, damage that the war inflicted on him. He was also self-reflective and honest enough to recognize and carry the burden of responsibility for a lot of suffering uh, that he could not undo. Um, and it, it, it was a hard project, but one that I know he needed to do, and I was uh, proud to help him. I remain proud to this day uh, to be a part of that book, because even though I think my own book is thorough and thoughtful, I'm, I'm modest enough and honest enough with myself to say that 100 years from now or 200 years from now, people are going to be reading this book um, more than mine. Um, it's sort of like if you study the Civil War, you read the memoirs of Sherman, you read the memoirs of Grant. Um, people studying the Vietnam War hundreds of years from now will be reading McNamara's memoirs. 
So in that sense, helping him do that uh, meant a lot to me as well as to him. I see. <clears throat> we have a similar background. Um, uh, Saigon fell while I was still in high school. And uh, it wasn't until I got into college where I saw Vietnam became, I don't want to say more real to me, but I started paying more attention to it in, in, retros- in, in retrospect, in hindsight. I saw a quote in, it was like Time Magazine or something like that. It was attributed to an Army recruiter. And the recruiter said, it was just a quote, and it just said, a lot of these kids don't remember Vietnam. That helps us a lot. And I thought, oh, my God, that just says it all right there. And I, I use this as a lead in my next question, which is, you know, at being a history professor at the, at the academy and everything, what, what do your students now think about the war? Are, 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 do they think there are lessons to be learned here? Well, they're fascinated by it, uh, the way that people are fascinated by a train wreck. Um, I mean, a lot went wrong. And as I try to explain to them, because they understand this intuitively, you learn a lot more from your uh, failures than you do from your successes. Um, and they, many of them, are going to have a lot of responsibility in the real world um, where people can get hurt. And that makes learning the right lessons from the war imperative. Uh, the hardest thing that I have to confront is how do you recreate the emotional atmosphere of the times? I think if you didn't live through it, it's very difficult to recreate that in a textured and faithful way. Uh, I could tell them that it divided the American people, that it generated immense controversy and anxiety and polarization, that it divided families. Um, and they get it intellectually, but I'm not sure they get it emotionally. Um, and I remain concerned that if you don't live through an event of that intensity, it's very difficult to recreate it for people. I see. Uh, my next question would be, how did you decide to use psychology and cognitive science as, as somewhat tools to review these decisions and, and, and uh, how the war was conducted? Well, it, McNamara's memoir was published in 1995, which is 24 years ago now. It's hard to believe. Uh, I had written a lot about Vietnam through this publication, and then I stopped completely um, for a couple of reasons. One was, and I still feel this is true to some degree, um, there's nothing that I could write myself that would <coughs> Uh, be more important or have more of an impact than what I had helped him write. Um, so topping that was almost impossible. Um, and I, the other reasons were uh, if I was to write about that subject, uh, I would have to be very critical of him. And I had no desire whatsoever to hurt him. Um, he carried enough uh, burden, self-inflicted and externally inflicted already, I didn't want to add to that. Um, and therefore, I thought silence was probably the best policy. I, I always, in the back of my mind, knew that I was going to write this book, but I had to wait until he passed away. Um, and the other thing, the deeper dilemma is, I got to know him quite well as a human being, and the, the, um, the paradox is, uh, he was extraordinarily intelligent, uh, compassionate, thoughtful, um, well-intentioned, and patriotic. And yet he participated in decisions that inflicted immense damage on the country that he loved. Um, and I, it just I remained a profound riddle to me how to reconcile the, that contradiction. How could someone who meant that well, who was that intelligent, who loved this country that much, uh, who is that sensitive to human feelings, make decisions that would 
damaged so many lives and wound this country as deeply as he, he did. And I think a lot of people are, uh, they frame or form their opinion about McNamara and the best and brightest as a result of Halberstam's book, which is a very good book. Um, but it's, it's true uh, as deep as it goes, which is it essentially assigns um, responsibility and blame to them for reasons of arrogance and ignorance, which is certainly part of the story, but it's more than that, um, because it kind of implies in, in, a, in a way that uh, they were either unfeeling, unthinking, um, remote, um, disconnected from the consequences of decisions, and that is simply not true. And I had to answer that question in my mind. How do you explain poor decisions of that magnitude by very intelligent people who are very patriotic and mean very well? And it wasn't just uh, Mr. McNamara who was doing it. I mean, the, all of that inner cabinet, that the XCOM, uh, the other officials that were involved, they were all thinking along the same lines, as you point out. Yes, and uh, I think that... It's not an exaggeration to say that um, President Kennedy and President Johnson relied more on his judgment and advice about Vietnam than anyone else in the cabinet or the White House. And I think it was a first among equals. John F. Kennedy once said that uh, McNamara was the uh, choicest pick of the lot in terms of who he brought to Washington in 1961. He was very close to the Kennedy family. He was very close to Johnson. He had a lot of responsibility. Um, but I had an opportunity to interview a lot of those who worked with him, uh, who, many of whom have passed away since then, almost all of them have. And I got the same impression from my interviews with them. Um, these are not monsters. Uh, these are not uh, idiots. These are not uh, people who are uh, egomaniacs who are out to promote themselves at the expense of other people and their suffering. They, they meant very well, and yet they inflicted immense damage. And, um, studying social science and the research of social science, particularly cognitive psychology um, and behavioral economics, helped me better understand the paradox. Because what it drives home is the fact that a high IQ is no protection against processing errors. Um, heuristics, these rules, these simplified rules of thumb that people use to cope with an avalanche of data and um, process it and make decisions under immense pressure of time they make flawed decisions very often and I, I realized to myself that helps explain the paradox. Um, you can mean well, you can apply a lot of intellect and yet the way you process the information that is coming at you or what you ignore as a result of heuristics helps explain um, the severity of the errors of judgment. I found when I was reviewing Road to Disaster, it's not a dry history book. It's, I think it's very well written. There's a voice of authority in it, which convinces me that you, you, you knew what you were doing when you were writing it and researching it. But I want to ask you about the research. I, there must be a mountain of research behind all this. And, and, uh, what kind of, what, how, did, how did the research come about? How was it, well, remember, I, I left this subject uh, in 1995, but it was always in the back of my mind. Uh, and I had been researching in the archives related to Vietnam decision-making since 1984. So I've been visiting Kennedy and Johnson presidential libraries for three decades. Um, so they know you at the front desk? They know me at the front desk, and I've done uh, paid my dues in terms of digging through the papers. And there's a mountain of paper. Uh, oftentimes what you have to learn are um, how to perform intelligent and 
awful triage on the documentation because not all documents are created equal. You have to learn your way and what counts and what sort of counts and what doesn't count. But also, frankly, a lot of, of the very best primary source material related to Vietnam decision making is now available uh, in published form or on the internet. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, when I helped Mr. McNamara, um, the recordings that John F. Kennedy made of meetings on Vietnam in the summer and fall of 1963 were not available to anyone. Um, the recordings that Lyndon Johnson made of telephone conversations throughout his presidency were not available to anyone. Um, I knew they existed, but the Kennedy and Johnson families had essentially kept them closed. Um, and McNamara and I discussed this, and he approached the Kennedy family and the Johnson family, and they said, okay, I give you permission and your research assistant permission, but you have to tell us what it is that you want to listen to. Um, I had no master list. Um, I didn't know what the universe of these recordings were, so what I advised him was, I said, these are the key dates. Uh, let's try to choose conversations around these dates, because the archivists are not going to they're not in a position to, sh to make available thousands of hours of telephone conversations or hundreds of hours of meeting uh, conversations. I had to make educated guesses. And in those circumstances, we were given access um, exclusively that no one had ever had before. And it was helpful. Uh, but since then, in the 25 years since then, all of the uh, meeting recordings that John F. Kennedy made um, in the Oval Office in the cabinet room and uh, Almost all of the telephone conversations that Lyndon Johnson taped uh, are now available. They're not transcribed, but if you go online on the internet through the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, you can listen to all of them. Uh, it's very time-consuming to sit there and listen to them and transcribe them, but one advantage I have is uh, I interviewed most of these people, so I recognize their voice, and that's a priceless advantage. Um, and it's labor-intensive, but it was worthwhile because that's the that's absolute 24-karat gold. Uh, government generates a lot of paper. Well, we all know that. Um, but that's the very top level of deliberation prior to decision-making. And that wasn't available to scholars uh, until fairly recently. And it's it, having access to that and processing that... Um, helped me immensely in terms of research and writing this book. Well, <clears throat> the, the book doesn't open directly in Vietnam. It backs up a bit, and it gives a bit of perspective with the uh, how the Kennedy administration handled the Bay of Pigs invasion and the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. That, that's a very nice window into the decision-making process, but it sort of contrasts with what, with what happened later in Vietnam. Um, I was going to ask you, the Missile Crisis was resolved successfully, and what... How, how do the two decision-making processes differ? Because it, was it a, the stakes were higher in, in, in Cuba? There, there was a t shorter time frame, perhaps? Well, the, the way I open the book is unconventional. Um, I do spend the first two chapters uh, looking at the decision-making on the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis before I introduce the subject of Vietnam. And there are reasons for that. Um, one is that's the sequence in which they learned how to make decisions related to national security. Vietnam was not a very significant item on their agenda in 1961 and 1962. But more importantly, and this is implicit in the book, I don't come out and say it, the relationship that was formed between President Kennedy and the senior military 
and between a later President Johnson's senior military, because his advisors were identical, were was defined as a result of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was a deeply dysfunctional dynamic. Um, and I could go into a lot of detail, but in essence, as a result of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy developed great skepticism uh, and doubt about the judgment of senior military officers. Uh, at the time of the Bay of Pigs, um, he asked them to review the CIA's plan of invasion of the Bay of Pigs. They did that, and they told him that it stood a, quote, fair chance, unquote, of success. Now, Kennedy was new to the job. Um, he was naive and unexperienced. He did not ask them, what do you mean by fair chance? But their definition of fair chance, we learned after the fact, was 30%. And a lesson that Kennedy learned from that was it's oftentimes what the senior military won't tell a president that you need to worry about. Um, and Kennedy and McNamara form impressions about the judgment of the senior military as a result of this that will carry over to Vietnam. During the missile crisis, as I lay out in the book, um, every single service chief, without exception, uh, pressed Kennedy to uh, attack Cuba. I, I found crisis. that rather f f scary. <laughs> well, yes, and um, Kennedy was appalled by this. He even told them at the time, if I do this, we're off to the races and we're probably going to start a nuclear war. Um, he, he was, and McNamara told me this after the fact, they, they were dumbfounded that they would be making that kind of recommendation out of the, out of the gate. And I, without going into too much detail, the, the takeaway point here is that both Kennedy and McNamara uh, became very skeptical about the judgment of senior military officers. And uh, I think it made them um, guarded and unwilling to be candid in terms of sharing their uh, anxieties and reservations with the senior military because they didn't trust their judgment. And the reverse was also true. I think the senior military uh, leaders in their early 60s, they all, almost without exception, tended to view nuclear weapons as usable, bigger bombs. Um, unlike today, where most senior military officers view nuclear weapons as having an ethical and moral justification simply by deterring their use by others. Uh, they wanted to, and were willing to use them, and Kennedy and Johnson wanted to avoid that. So what this did was it created a dysfunctional dynamic between the president and the senior military leadership, which has immense consequences when it comes to Vietnam decision-making, because neither the, the White House nor the service chiefs would really let their hair down with each other when it came to Vietnam decision-making and say, in essence, these are my anxieties, these are my fears, these are my apprehensions, because they basically did not trust each other. And that is a lousy recipe for good decision-making when it comes to war and peace. And it was, it's, it's rather unique, too, because both, uh, well, McNamara and Kennedy and, and some of the others, they did have military service, so it's not as if the military was a foreign concept to them. They had some idea of the military mind. They did, and um, I, the two distinctions I would make here, if you look at Kennedy... Kennedy had military experience, but he was a junior officer uh, who, at the time of the PT episode in the Pacific, learned a powerful lesson, which is uh, the plan almost never goes according to plan, A, and B, the only thing you control in a war is the first shot. I think he had internalized that. The chaos, the heartache, the unpredictability of war was real to him because he had lived it, um, and that made him very, very reluctant to use military forces a solution to those kinds of problems. McNamara told me privately once, and I think he mentions this in the Fog of War documentary that Errol Morris did with him, 
He had served as a staff officer to Curtis LeMay. When Curtis LeMay was the field commander for B-29 bombing operations against the cities of Japan in 1945. And he said LeMay was the best tactical Air Force commander uh, in the United States Army Air Force at the end of World War II. He was brave. Um, he was uh, systematic in his thinking. He was effective. And one example of this was um, initially when they were bombing Japan cities, they were flying at high altitude and missing a lot of their targets. And LeMay realized this because of the analytical data that McNamara and the other statisticians mm -hmm. provided to him. He said, well, the answer is we just have to go in low. Which is uh, much more dangerous. Much more dangerous. Um, and not only did they go in low, but uh, LeMay led the bombing raids at the lower altitude. So he walked the talk um, and inflicted extraordinary damage on Japan um, as a result of that. But McNamara also said that LeMay um, um, was a recklessly thoughtless and dangerous uh, chief of staff for the Air Force because he had essentially been promoted beyond his capabilities, that his judgment was very good at a tactical level in implementing those kinds of decisions, but contributing to making them was that truculent um, bulldog mentality uh, is very appropriate in some circumstances, but during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the name of the game there was to protect American national interests while preventing a nuclear war. And uh, LeMay and his colleagues were ready to saddle up to start one. Listening to those, uh, the, the tapes that you mentioned earlier, the, of the uh, White House conversations, uh, was there anything that you heard unexpected that perhaps startled you or that you had no idea existed before? Yeah. Um, and I remember this even from uh, 1993 when I first listened to these tapes. Uh, I was the first person to get to listen to the Kennedy meeting tapes. I was in a secure room at the Kennedy Library, and I had chosen uh, a couple of meetings um, around, um, I think it's uh, October 1st of 1963. It relates to this decision that Kennedy will make to begin the process of what's referred to as the phased withdrawal of American military advisors. Uh, many historians think that, uh, and I assumed, having not heard any of these tapes, that uh, Kennedy was uh, very aggressively in favor of uh, initiating and implementing the drawdown of American military advisors in Vietnam. But it, when you listen to the tape, you can go online and listen to it, it's at the Kennedy Library. Uh, what you realize is, uh, it's not Kennedy who's pushing this, it's McNamara. Hmm. Um, and I asked him when we prepared his memoir um, whose idea was it to start the drawdown he said uh, I recommended it to President Kennedy and if you listen to the recording which you realize that Kennedy is skeptical about the wisdom of the first 1,000 uh, advisor drawdown um, and you have to stop and think about that and what you realize is there are many things I laid them out in the book and that is uh, McNamara was making an assumption that we could reduce our advisory presence because he was wishfully assuming that uh, the war would, uh, the war effort would improve and the South Vietnamese Army would take up more of the slack. So he was predicating that recommendation on a fallacious assumption based on wishful thinking. And Kennedy was savvy about that. I think he realized that things were not going as well as McNamara hoped they were, and therefore he was skeptical 
that uh, the first 1,000 should even be announced and implemented. And you hear that in the recording. Mm -hmm. it's, it's extraordinary. Um, I think Kennedy, he wanted to avoid the use of American combat forces in Vietnam. There's no question about that. I mean, he understood the political dimension of the war far better than most. I understood what could go wrong with the application of force. He wasn't in favor of doing that. But he was also an American elective politician of the Democratic Party who was deeply sensitive to being attacked for being soft on communism and having um, lost Vietnam. So he was trying to straddle that. He wanted to avoid an American military commitment, but he also wanted to avoid losing. So the way he reconciled that uh, was to increase the advisory presence. And when you look at the number of American military advisors in Vietnam on the day he's assassinated compared to the day he became president, um, it increased from 900 and something to 16,000. Um, there's a hell of a lot of uh, inertia and momentum that's built into that. In other words, he increased advisory presence because he wanted to help the South Vietnamese learn to fight the war for themselves. But it, what it did effectively was it increased their dependency on us and it, it uh, kept the momentum increasing when it came to American military involvement, even as an advisory, um, in an advisory capacity. And in a way, he, he ended up inadvertently uh, deepening an involvement and creating pressures for greater involvement, which was precisely what he sought to avoid. Mm -hmm. But as I point out on the first page of the book, so much of decision-making government is a disconnect between intent and effect. Well, it seems... Uh after Kennedy, when Johnson inherited inherited the war, he was even more tormented by the specter of losing than Kennedy was. Well, I think he was a more insecure human being than Kennedy was. Um, they were both elective politicians of the Democratic Party. And it's important to remember when it comes to decision-making in the 1960s, uh, Truman had been crucified for losing China to the communists in 1949. Um, and Kennedy and Johnson were uh, junior uh, representatives and senators in, in Washington who watched the crucifixion. Kennedy participated in it. Um, and they both understood the consequences of losing Vietnam would be devastating for them politically. Um, and I think that made them immensely reluctant to let go of the loser. Um, neither one of them wanted a war. But I think that um, set against that was um, I can't afford to get out. And I think Kennedy, and I mentioned this in the book, I think his calculus was the application, the unpredictability of the application of American military force in Vietnam was a greater anxiety to him, um, whereas for Johnson, the greatest anxiety were the domestic political consequences of getting out. Uh, it's a subtle distinction, but it's an important one. And I think Kennedy had also, he was secure enough in himself that hearing this uh, speech from LeMay about bombing the Russians in the Stone Age, um, he listened to it and hear him out and think he's a nut uh, and not feel pressured into doing anything like that. I think Johnson was, he was more insecure uh, in his deals with the military. Hmm. Um, and I think it made him more susceptible to the drip, drip, drip advice about uh, more force over time, which they applied relentlessly uh, immediately after he became president. And that was when he was trying to get the Great Society a movement going? Yes. And Kennedy had also sought to uh, get civil rights legislation through Congress, 
but um, he was unsuccessful because the the uh, the grip that Southern Democrats, particularly in the Senate, had on the filibuster process prevented the movement of legislation through Congress, um, and it had basically become stalled. Now, after his assassination, Johnson will take up the baton and try to get through Kennedy's initiated. What Johnson had was an intimate knowledge, an understanding of how um, the Senate worked, particularly among those Southern Democratic barons, because he had been a part of that. He had been Senate Majority Leader in the late 50s. He understood those people, how they worked, how the games played, how to manipulate and cajole them into doing what he wanted to get done. Um, he prioritized that. I think for Kennedy, his passion was foreign affairs, mm-hmm. as it was for George H.W. Bush. I think for Johnson, uh, his passion was domestic policy, domestic affairs. Uh, Vietnam was just this unwanted mess that was sitting at his door that he wanted to avoid as much as possible. The problem was with each passing month, the ability to avoid it became less and less possible. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a recurring theme in the book I see is, is a lack of reflection uh, on the part of U.S. officials who are, who are making these decisions as the war is dri- driving on. But mm-hmm. it, the, the North Vietnamese, on the other hand, are... are really adaptable to changing conditions. I mean, when the U.S. would increase bombing, I mean, they would shift in a, into another direction. I, could you just sort of compare for us the two, the two mo- modes of thought that they was going on? Um, I've thought about that myself. Uh, the adaptability, the wisdom in terms of adaptability of the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong was extraordinarily superior to that of the United States. Um, and I'm not sure that they were innately more intelligent or wiser than the Americans were, but there's a big difference. They couldn't afford to be stupid. Uh, if they didn't figure out how to adapt quickly, they'd be dead. Mm-hmm. Whereas the United States, being the big elephant, could uh, afford to be sloppy and stupid without being dead. Um, you know, it cost a lot of lives. It led to a flawed policy and strategy that bogged us down. But our existence wasn't at stake. Theirs was. Um, and they played this game with the French. It wasn't their first rodeo, as they say in Texas, where I grew up. It hit their first rodeo. And, and with the Chinese before that, I mean, mm-hmm. because they actually... And the, the Mongols, you can yes. go back centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, Vietnamese had, had coped with a superior adversary uh, from uh, the outside over and over and over again in similar ways. And what's really sobering to contemplate is, if you study Vietnamese history, um, it becomes rather apparent fairly quickly. But most people hadn't studied it. And that says something right there. Um, we didn't learn from the French experience. I mean, they got bogged down. Um, and you ask yourself, why in the world didn't we learn that lesson? Well, the thinking at that time was, they're the B team. We're Americans. Uh, we're the A team. They were colonialists mm-hmm. who want to reimpose control over those people. We want to help them build a democratic government. We mean well. We're not selfish. The French were selfish. They're the B team. They haven't won wars since Napoleon. We're different. <laughs> so, a bit of arrogance, perhaps, on the. Uh... Yes. <clears throat> and at the... it's been said in an avalanche, no single snowflake feels responsible. I mean, if, if we draw about that, drawing on that analogy, who do you think bears the greatest responsibility among all these American officials for the war? I mean, granted, Mr. McNamara is a prime candidate. But... He's a prime candidate. Um, I would answer it in two ways. I'll start with the presidents, because constitutionally they're the ones who make the decision. Um, so Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and Eisenhower Truman before them, they all bear responsibility 
course, the thing is that the, the, the involvement became deeper and deeper with each successive administration, um, climaxing with Johnson, and then Nixon is faced with uh, getting out of this mess, and he had his own dysfunctions and pathologies, but um, the presidents, um, because they are mandated by the Constitution to make the decisions. They get a lot of advice from a lot of people, and McNamara was first among equals in terms of the advice they listened to, but they owned it. Now, I would go even as deeper than that. I'd say the American people. Um, I think we ultimately get what we deserve. And the American people elected as president individuals who made flawed decisions because they reflected the attitudes and priorities and values of the American people. Vietnam is our mistake, as well as being Kennedy and Johnson's and Nixon's mistake. What, what, other, what other presidents have done I know it's pure speculation, but what other presidents have handled it differently, do you think? Had Nixon had been in there in 1960? Um, I, I, I'm not the kind of historian who likes to do counterfactual history. Um, I have a hard enough time understanding, explaining why things happened as they did rather than what they might have done. Um, but I'll say this. Um, you look back on it now, uh, success is very intoxicated. Um, and it can be very corrosive. Um, we were on a roll. Uh, we had won the greatest war in human history. We had defeated evil. Uh, we had been the leader of that parade. We had never lost a war. Um, as I point out in the first chapter on Vietnam, I spent a fair amount of time recreating this, this uh, atmosphere, this psychology of uh, success uh, through the application of uh, effort. There's nothing that the United States could not do if it simply put itself to the task. Mm -hmm. And that is true of the Depression and overcoming that, overcoming evil in World War II. Um, again, hindsight's 2020. Uh, it would have been remarkable had they been more uh, or less hubristic in the early 1960s. Um, I think the country um, had set itself up for a big fall frankly, um, and we've never recovered from it um, 50 years on. It's the trauma of that is so profound. Um, and I think the reason for that is it, the failure of tragedy of Vietnam strikes the very heart of what it means to be an American, that can-do ethos, uh, we're the good guys and we can get her done. Um, Vietnam just detonated that, and I think Americans are still uh, in therapy over that, either in denial mm -hmm. or therapy. Um, it, it's it's hard um, to to come to terms with what the, what the lessons of that may be. But I do think you learn a lot more from your failures than you do from your successes, and success can be very, very, very dangerous. It's a paradox, isn't it? Who doesn't want to succeed? But when you succeed, you're setting yourself up sometimes. Is part of that mindset the reason why they didn't understand Vietnamese history or, or, or the, the Vietnamese attitude towards foreigners, foreign invasion, foreign occupiers? Well, they, I mean, their, their lack of curiosity and, and uh, knowledge of Vietnamese culture and history was appalling. There's no question about that. But that was uh, part of the course. Uh, and I cite an example in the book. Harvard University in the early to mid-1960s, assigned Vietnamese studies to the Francophone faculty, the French-speaking faculty of their university. 
to, for Harvard University, Vietnam was an area of French studies. I was, I, I'm going to ask you to speculate one more time. If, what, what do you think Mr. McNamara would have thought about your book? Uh, I've thought about that very often. Um, I, I hope um, that I, uh, he would think that I treated him fairly. Um, I hope that um, it would not um, increase his suffering. Um, and I think that he would understand and agree with why I wrote it, um, so that you, you can learn something constructive from the disaster. You, know, you search the debris field for something redemptive. Um, he, you know, his health went into decline at the end. I stayed in touch with him all all those years. Um, I remember this was a, a year or two before he passed away. He was pretty much um, limited to his apartment. Um, he got a letter from a young woman who was a student at the University of British Columbia who was um, in a class on political autobiography and she had written him and asked him to discuss why he had written <coughs> in retrospect. Um, and it was typical of him. The first thing he did was he contacted me and asked me uh, what my thoughts were in response to the letter. And uh, I told him that, uh, in essence, it was a hard book to write. It had its imperfections, um, but it offered uh, lessons and insights that um, give some redemptive meaning to all the suffering and sacrifice of the war. And I remember he, he wrote back an email, in essence, said, I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I, I do wish people could uh, it's hard, though, to see him as a human being because he's such an iconic figure. He's so, such a caricature. He's such a lightning rod, and understandably so. People like to put a face on misfortune, and his face got put on that one, and I understand why. I do. Um, but I also wish that people could understand the humanity beneath that because that makes the story even more uh, unnerving. It's not the story of bad people making bad decisions. It's the much more frightening story of good people making bad decisions. And I tell this to the midshipmen at the Naval Academy, and they're not stupid. They can connect those dots. They see themselves as what? Good people. I see myself as a good person. We all see ourselves as good people. I mean, it's terrifying to contemplate that. And I tell them, I say, um, I mean, people dream and scheme in Washington to get to the top of the greasy pole so that they can be president or secretary of defense or secretary of state. What they don't understand is what it's really like when you get to the top of the greasy pole. Um, the decisions you have to make are usually the hardest decisions that don't have good answers, almost always choosing among lesser evils with the human consequences that you cannot undo. And you're making these decisions under immense time pressure with in, incomplete information. I would run to those jobs. I would, I would run from them, seriously, because I saw the consequences. McNamara got to spend 40 years of his life living with the consequences of being a big shot in the Pentagon. 
I think we're, or, or, you want question and answers now, perhaps? I yeah, love questions. questions. Good. Yes. So this is um, just amazing um, to have this opportunity to hear your thinking about the experiences that many of us in this room had, whether we went or didn't go, this uh, the defining event in our young, uh, late adolescent young adulthood. Yes. Um, and your um, scholarship, I can't read you the book, but just as you describe your thinking, your scholarship clearly is going to make a huge difference, hopefully, in not only how the average person thinks, but folks who will find themselves in the situation. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, I have, it's a, this is part of the question, maybe it's an opinion disguised as a question. That's perfectly um, fine. So I may have this wrong. I remember thinking when, in retrospect, came out um, that there was a point the McNamara really came to the conclusion that the world's not equal and that mistakes had been made. And he continued to push forward. And I deeply appreciate your respect for him and your understanding of the uh, mistakes that people make and what a good man at heart he was undoubtedly. But so my first question is if you could reflect a little bit yes. on the difference between making a mistake and then facing the consequences and knowing up versus making a mistake and recognizing the consequences when you have an opportunity to do something about it and not. Yes. Which is not the same as a cognitive error. And the corollary, the related question to that, um, I'm someone who's spent, my career has been in various organizations and some bureaucracies and in government, outside of government, et cetera. Johnson, I think you just nailed him as somebody who was personally insecure and politically astute, which is not a good combination. <laughs> He, the people around him could have affected his decision making. Yes, the responsibility is the president, but he always tended to look He leaned more on his advisors than Kennedy did. Exactly. Yes. And especially somebody like McNamara was his guy. Yeah. So my first part of the question sort of relates to the second. He really did have a chance to do something, I thought. Mm -hmm. Again, mm -hmm. this is foggy memory. Mm -hmm. And didn't. It seems to connect to not just the cognitive piece, but like at that point, mm -hmm. when he knows the war is unavoidable, and he knows that the are dying, Americans are dying. What? Mm -hmm. How do you square that? You make excellent point? points, and I think the first of your two questions uh, touches on, to me, the most damning um, criticism of Macnair in hindsight, which is, and I. I wrestled with this, um, and I addressed it in the book. Um, when he reached the conclusion that the war cannot be won at acceptable risk and cost, um, there was a moral imperative to blow the whistle to avoid pointlessly sacrificing more lives. Why did he not do that? And I'll address the second question in a moment. Um, 
I wrestled with that um, for years. And it's one of the reasons why the preeminent theme in the, I think it's chapter five of the book, is what's known as the sunk cost fallacy. The tendency on the part of people, once they have invested in an endeavor, to double the bet to avoid losing the hand. But it's much more emotionally wrenching than that. For McNamara and Johnson, the bet is human life. The chips on the table are American lives. Um, and I think for McNamara, the thing that he wrestled with and that tormented him was, uh, I would say as early as the, probably October, November of 1965, he realized this thing was badly flawed. I think his initial reaction was, I'm going to double my efforts and try to figure out how to fix the problem. But with each passing month as the casualties increased, it wasn't getting fixed. But he was stuck in this mindset of, uh, I have to validate the sacrifices that have already been made. American boys have died. Uh, I. I can't tell the president to walk away because I would nullify the sacrifice of these lives. And the psychology of that, the emotional um, weight of that on decision makers is immense. It was immense on him, it was immense on Johnson. I think in his case, he continued to fixate on that metric throughout 1966 and much of 1967. In other words, this thing is going badly wrong, but We've invested so many American lives in this. I can't. I cannot. I cannot walk away from this, even if it's all messed up. Um, and I think he eventually, this beginning of the spring of 1967, he shifted away from fixation on um, sunk costs to prospective costs. In other words the damage that a deep involvement would do to this nation, um, our politics, our culture, the alienation of the entire generation. Um, I think that began to trump his uh, fix, his sunk cost preoccupation. Um, and it's when he crossed that bridge that he starts submitting memos to Johnson privately, basically saying, this is a loser. Uh, there is no acceptable solution here. Uh, the answer is not to pour in more down this rat hole, but to uh, figure a way to stabilize and eventually disengage. You're not going to win the war militarily, so you have to settle it diplomatically. And I think Johnson was unwilling to accept that uh, for longer than McNamara was. Um, and he was stubborn, he was insecure, but he's also President of the United States. You know, at the end of the day, he made the decision. And by 1967, um, 15,000 Americans have died. Uh, now, if we're really honest with ourselves, if you're president of the United States and you've made decisions that have led to the loss of 15,000 American lives, um, how likely are you in the middle of the night to tell yourself, I've made a grievous mistake and I need to walk away? Um, the, the, the emotional psychological weight of that is just enormous. It's hard for people oftentimes to, to understand. And I think that's what, that's why McNamara dragged his feet as long as he did. And that's why Johnson 
also was unwilling to get to that point where he would admit to himself that he'd made a grievous mistake, and the answer wasn't to keep doubling down, but to you know, figure out a way to get out of this mess. And I think Johnson will eventually do that through McNamara's efforts, but it's only after he's gotten rid of McNamara because he's irritated at the effort. It's a paradox. Um, Johnson, at one level, didn't want to hear all of this. Who would, honestly? Um, and it bugged him. And uh, when McNamara publicly, in August of 1967, um, disagreed with uh, the service chiefs about the efficacy of bombing, that was it. Um, his days were numbered. Johnson was going to get him out of there. And he did in a way which is pretty gracious. He arranged the world presidency. Bank, the World Bank presidency for McNamara, and he realized that McNamara was on the cusp of a nervous breakdown. Um, and but he wanted him out because he's telling him things he doesn't want to hear. And within a couple of months of McNamara leaving, Johnson effectively began implementing the recommendations that McNamara made to him before he left. Um, but that's a tall order for any president to swallow, especially someone who is insecure like Lyndon Johnson. But he did. Um, and then the, the hideous reality is that I think once Johnson made the fundamental decision to begin to get out, he began to realize, oh my God, getting out is going to be just as awfully difficult as where I am now. Um, when Johnson um, announced on March 31st of 1968 that he was not going to run for re-election, he knew he wasn't going to get re-elected anyway. But that later that night, uh, in the, in the family court of the White House, he made a private comment to the effect that, um, in essence, uh, I've fallen on my sword politically, but that's okay because I'm going to get all of my boys out of Vietnam by the end of this year. <sighs> you know, it would take four years to get out. Um, and the reason for that is not that complicated. We had hurt the North Vietnamese, and they had no particular incentive to help us get out. They understood quite well the dynamics. They had all the strategic advantages, and they knew that if they just keep dinging us and inflicting casualties on us, the American public is going to say enough of this, and the longer they held out, the better terms they would get. So why help us get out? Now we had 15,000 in some costs, think of the some costs in the Vietnamese. Yes. Uh, Clifford told me something once privately I quoted in the book. Um, I remember he was Secretary of Defense during 1968, which was the bloodiest year of the Vietnam War. In 1968, I think this is a correct statistic, it's in the book, 45 Americans were killed each day in Vietnam. 45 a day. Um, and he's been tasked by Johnson to figure a way out of this mess. Um, he told me, he said, Brian, getting into a war is a thousand times easier than getting out of one. Getting into a war is a thousand times easier than getting out of one. You know, look at Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Look at Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. There was, I think, please. Two questions. Yeah. First, uh, have you and HR McMaster compared notes? I know him. Um, when uh, he was an instructor at West Point, he invited me up to give a lecture, and he gave me a tour of West Point. 
Uh, he's a nice man. Um, I don't agree with his judgments about McNamara and the Vietnam War, and he knows that, but that's okay. Uh, he came and spoke at the Naval Academy last year when he was during that little interval before he got uh, removed uh, as National Security Advisor, and I spoke to him for a few minutes at the end of his uh, dinner presentation, and we hugged each other. And, uh, I like him as a human being. Um, I don't agree with his historical judgments, but that's okay. They're two sides to every coin. And uh, second, um, at Harvard Business School, uh, where I'm an alumnus, uh, Robert McNamara is still obviously an icon. Yes. Uh, quite, quite apart from Vietnam itself. Have, is there anyone on the HBS faculty with whom you've engaged on the McNamara, particularly the sunk cost fallacy and other of the fallacies of that era of analytical theory? Well, um, the short answer is uh, Thomas Christensen has done some work that uh, impresses me. But the larger, longer answer is, to me, the real pioneer and the, the heavyweight when it comes to uh, understanding and explaining to ordinary mortals like you and me the cognitive limitation and flaws that even very intelligent people have when it comes to processing information uh, is a Nobel Prize winning psychologist at Princeton named Daniel Kahneman. Um, he's, he did a lot of work, even as long ago as the 70s, with Amos Tversky on this topic. Um, and my hat is off to him on this, because I, when I read his work and some of the related um, social science research on these topics, it helped me understand, it helped reconcile the paradox. Um, there was more obscure, but um, back in those 70s, of, I don't know if he's still on the faculty, he's probably retired, if not, after he passed away. Uh, the UC Berkeley faculty in the psychology department was a guy named Barry Staw, S-T-A-W, who wrote on um, um, basically the pathology of escalating commitments in unwinnable situations. And I read a lot of that and I said to myself, that, there's a lot of insight here. Why do people continue to double down in the face of a losing situation? How do you explain that? They don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't want to admit they're wrong. And, and the, 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 the sunk cost dynamic and the psychological burden of admitting to yourself first and then to the American people that you've messed up is, again, it's an academic exercise for me. I can sit here all night long and quarterback this in hindsight and say how dumb and stupid they were, but my decisions haven't led to the deaths of people. And the point I'm trying to make to you is when you've made decisions that have gotten people killed, um, the psychological, emotional um, um, ensnarement that results from that is just immense. So you talked about the hubris that uh, was sort of an American way of thinking. Yes. Um, but yet, we really didn't win everything before Vietnam. True. I mean, there was Korea, which yes. history has shown as a stalemate. Yes. What did advisors learn from Korea before Vietnam? Well, that's a very good question, too. I think the big distinction that uh, you can make now and that they made then between Vietnam and Korea was in Korea we did not lose. We didn't win, but you could avoid a loss. Um, and in addition to that, um, I think of all of the Kennedy Johnson advisors 
on Vietnam who were most deeply affected by Korea is probably Dean Rusk, mm -hmm. uh, who was Secretary of State during the Vietnam War. But he had been Assistant Secretary of State to uh, George Marshall and Robert Lovett during the um, Korean War. And we all uh, draw lessons from events and decisions. Um, and the lesson that the young Rusk in the early 1950s drew from the Korean War was um, uh, don't underestimate China because he had failed to anticipate Chinese intervention in the Korean War. So he thought his big mistake was underestimating Chinese in Korea. So when he was Secretary of State 10 years later, 15 years later in Vietnam, he makes the opposite mistake. He applies that lesson to Vietnam, but he overestimates China. He thinks that China is the driving force behind the North Vietnamese aggression against South Vietnam, which it wasn't. Um, but we're all prisoners of our own experience. We're all prisoners of the lessons that we draw from uh, past choices. Um, and it, it's another example of what I mean when I tell my students at the Naval Academy, if you really stop and reflect on the stakes and the flaws in human reasoning, amid those kinds of stakes, who would want a job like that? I think, frankly, a lot of people who dream and scheme in D.C. now and forever to become president or secretary of state or secretary of the state don't really contemplate what it means when they become that. Um, because the choices are really, generally speaking, really lousy. They're almost always, particularly when you're dealing with issues of national security, among lesser evils. So was it fear of failure that caused them not to want to walk away, or was it fear of letting communism win? Oh, all of the above. Fear of, fear of failure, fear of uh, the totalitarian nature of communism, which is real. They were trying to build a functional democratic alternative in South Vietnam. That's an admirable goal. But just because the, the goal may be admirable in theory uh, doesn't make it doable in practice. Um, then you reach that point where the national interest at stake are being grotesquely exceeded by the uh, damage that's being inflicted on the United States as a result of the pursuit of those objectives. Um, that McNamara and Clifford both came to that conclusion that the war could not be won at acceptable risk and cost. Now, the qualifier is acceptable. Um, you know, the, the United States Air Force could have turned North Vietnam into an asphalt parking lot. We can call that a win. Um, McNamara then and privately told me, he said, Brian, the only way that we would have beaten them would be to commit genocide against them. Um, and he said, I wasn't going to do that. The presidents were not willing to do that. Even the service chiefs were not willing to do that. Um, so it's... What's the old saying? It's complicated. Um, but the lesson that I've always reached after reflecting on this is um, having the burden of responsibility for making decisions like that is immense. Um, it is, and you can't undo your mistakes. McNamara could not undo his mistakes. Uh, at the end of his life, he told his son, he felt God had abandoned him. He told me privately um, a year or two before he passed away, 
he said, um, I don't deserve a memorial service or burial in Laurel International Cemetery. We are going to do two more questions. Okay. Uh, well, a conventional interpretation of the, of the war would suggest that Johnson always had his eye on the domestic politics we made uh, policy in Vietnam, as well as an eye on the global environment and what Russia and China might do in response to any kind of escalation. So I guess my question is, were there high-level discussions? I, I, I'm ignorant about this completely. High-level discussions by McNamara and Johnson and so forth to maybe open up some sort of diplomatic approach to Russia or China to shift the global strategic picture to allow for some sort of settlement to take place. This is a question drawn from ignorance, and that's why I'm asking. No, it's a good question. Uh, there is no bad question, frankly. Um, I think that over time, there's an evolution. Uh, Johnson and those who advised him on Vietnam War, uh, with each passing year, became more and more cognizant of the fact that Vietnam War is not a put-up job by the Chinese. Um, but they're, they're stuck in what was once called the Big Muddy. You know, they're up to their neck in this thing. Um, and the, the momentum of that can be an awesome thing. Clifford told me this once privately. He used a metaphor which was really powerful. He said, Brian, when you're deeply involved in a war that you're not winning, or frankly losing, um, it's like a, tr a big, heavy train hurtling downhill. And the ability to stop the train and turn it around, you know, it's hard. Um, just the, the, the military, just think about the emotional, psychological, and financial, and reputational career investment that the military had gotten into by 1965, 6, and 7. Um, they're human beings too, you know, the, the ability for them to say to themselves, oh man, this is a loser, uh, it's hard. Um, and I mentioned this in the book, I was a little reluctant to mention it because it's so sensitive, but um, Clifford's military assistant was an Air Force colonel, he was later Lieutenant General in the Air Force, named Robert Persley. Um, um, I don't know how it came up, but Clifford had made a comment privately to his staff, this I think was in the spring or summer of 1968, that he had come to the conclusion they felt like the military was not particularly interested in um, you know, terminating the war. And um, Persley's comment in privately was, um, and this is almost a quote, that's true at senior levels only. <laughs> Meaning those who are fighting the war are quite interested in terminating this adventure, whereas the service chiefs are not. Um, and he even then went on to quote uh, an officer in Air Force planning. This is a direct quote, it's in one of the footnotes in the book. Um, it's not an exact quote, but something effective. The Air Force doesn't want to uh, win in Vietnam if it invalidates Air Force doctrine. So your answer might be short to this question because you've already said you don't like to think about counterfactuals, but I can't help but wonder what would have happened if Kennedy had not been assassinated. Um, 
and the reason I think about it is because he actually did learn from Bear Biggs and handled Cuban Missile Crisis better. Mm -hmm. He was also a very smart guy who was a lifelong learner. And he understood and, the political dimension of the war. And I'm wondering that we might not have had the great society because he wasn't as politically astute as uh, Johnson, although maybe he would have turned it over to him. So I don't know what would have happened there, but I can't help but wonder uh, if things would have turned out, they might have turned out exactly the same, but mm -hmm. I'm wondering, because he had such a close relationship with McNamara, mm -hmm. uh, and there was such a mutual respect there, Yes. Uh, if there wouldn't have been a possibility, I, I don't know if it's occurred to you uh, at all. It has. About that. Uh, you know, and there's a, um, one of my peers in the historical profession currently teaches at Harvard um, on this subject is very much of the opinion that Kennedy would not have done what Johnson did, um, that he would have gotten us out. I'll answer the question this way. I will not indulge in counterfactuals, but as I mentioned toward the end of Chapter 3 when I talk about his decision-making on Vietnam in the fall of 1963, um, I think Kennedy was just as sensitive as Johnson was about the catastrophic political consequences of American withdrawal from Vietnam. Now, he also understood the political nature of that war intimately, and I think he understood the limitations of American military force, but he sanctioned the coup that took out Siem. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, he did not live to deal with the consequences of that, which were absolutely catastrophic. Uh, it created a political sandbox and incompetence uh, in South Vietnam. Zinn was had his problems and his limitations, but Kennedy was fixated on was what's what I call uh, failure anticipation. In other words, his his preoccupation was either getting Zinn and knew his brother to clean up their act or get rid of them. Um, and the South Vietnamese military got rid of him with Kennedy's tacit consent. But Kennedy had not weighed the consequences of doing that. Um, and the consequences, even his advisors as uh, close to him as George Bundy would later say in hindsight, that was a really dumb thing to do, um, sanctioning that coup, because it, it ushered in political chaos that was probably uh, irremediable. Um, so that's the best way I can answer that question. Um, and I think with the passage of time, this coup against CM looks uh, more and more unwise. Um, and that was Kennedy's uh, doing. But Johnson got to deal with the uh, cleanup. So thank you both Brian and George so much for your critical and thoughtful conversation. Thank you all for coming out tonight for the discussion. The Ivy Bookshop is here in the hallway for you to purchase your copy of the book. Um, that's all. Have a great night. And one a huge round of a hand. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.